G'day and welcome to the MedEd Source, the podcast from the Department of Medical Education at the Melbourne Medical School. My name is Brett Vaughan, I'm a lecturer in clinical education in the Melbourne Medical School and I'll be your host for today's podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be talking with Professor Jill Klein again. So just to refresh our memory, Jill's been on our podcast before talking about leadership, uh, but Jill's got an extensive background. Uh, at the moment, she is a professor of marketing in the Melbourne Business School and a professorial fellow at the Melbourne Medical School, both at the University of Melbourne. Uh, I suppose Jill's interests are really very wide and many. Uh, but particularly, we're going to be looking at resilience and coping today. So welcome, Jill. Thanks. It's great to, to be here. And I will mention that I'm really happy this is an audio podcast. Go on. Well, um, my hair was getting way too long. I have a <laughs> style and, you know, they grow out quickly. So it's just been disastrous. And um, my husband gave me a haircut yesterday. Now, I will say that for someone who is not a hairdresser, my husband gave me an excellent haircut. Oh, okay. Fantastic. But he's not a hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, yes, in, in these times where we can't necessarily access the hairdresser, we've got to do different things. So I'm glad it's worked out for you. It has worked out okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> so... Yeah, I suppose, as I said, we're talking resilience and coping today. So I want to just think about some definitions first and get your impressions of what definitions of these two concepts are. So I want to go with resilience first. What's a, what's a definition of resilience? Well, so resilience is the ability to cope with challenges, unexpected change and adversity. Um, and we when we say, you know, cope with it, it, it kind of means, are we able to get back to a reasonable level of functioning in a reasonable amount of time after an adversity hits or while an adversity is going on? So resilience doesn't mean that if something bad happens, we don't cry, we don't feel upset, we don't feel angry. It's not about being superhuman. It's how long does it take us to resume a reasonably normal level of functioning? So does it depend on the degree of adversity that an individual's facing. Yes, it definitely does. Look, um, something little can happen. And for most of us, we might be upset for a short while, but then we pick up and, and everything, everything is fine. Um, but of course there are massive adversities, the loss of a loved one, um, you know, massive upheaval in the way we do things kind of like we're dealing with now that can be much, much harder to cope with. Um, and where you might see different recovery trajectories across different people where some, you know, get back to normal functioning reasonably quickly, even though they're still, you know, hurting and having difficulty. And for some of us, you know, no, we would need to take much more time away uh, to recover from the adversity before we resumed a normal level of functioning. Another key aspect of, you know, resilience and what resilience means is it's more than just bouncing back. There's sort of this notion that as we deal with adversity, we develop coping strategies for adversity, that we get stronger. And I think all of us in our careers can look back to things, 
that were tremendously upsetting early on. And if they happened today, we'd be kind of meh. You know, we wouldn't be thrilled that they happened, but it would be kind of no big deal. And that suggests that we're kind of stepping our way up a staircase of resilience, where we're getting in, we're getting stronger and stronger because past experiences of adversities have given us the opportunity to learn strategies for dealing with those adversities. And so that's the idea of resilience as well. It's not just bouncing back to where we were before, but it's also getting stronger as we go along. Another thing I should mention is that when things are really bad, hanging on by our fingernails can be a really, really resilient response. So for, for clinicians in Australia, you know, some weeks ago when all the preparations were being done for a wave of COVID-19 cases, when there were all these worries and concerns about PPE, and there were tremendous unknowns and we were having to change the way we worked and we had to be worried about, will I catch COVID at work and then potentially bring it home to our family? I mean, it was a, it was a potentially overwhelming situation. And I would say if during that time you were hanging in by your fingernails, that's a resilient response, right? So resilience doesn't always mean we're like, oh, I'm completely on top of everything that's happening. It can mean we're able to hang in there and put one foot in front of the other while something really difficult is happening. And sometimes it can mean knowing that we need to take time out and just stop everything a while and pay attention to our own well-being so that we then can come back and function at a reasonable level. Resilience in some circles has a, a bit of a negative connotation. And I was wondering what your, I suppose, your comments were about this, this sort of negative perception that goes around it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, and, and it's particularly prominent in, in medicine. I don't see this issue quite as much, say, in the business world or working with government agencies, but it's certainly an issue that's come up in healthcare. And I think the issue is that we do resilience training for students, for junior doctors and so forth. And then they can end up in a truly crap hospital culture, a truly toxic culture where there's bullying, there's unreasonable demands, unreasonable expectations, you know, rostering that makes it impossible for someone to get an adequate level of sleep, which we know is tremendously detrimental to well-being. So in other words, you know, we, we do well-being, well-being and resilience training and then send people into crap environments. And then there can be this sense of, you know, well, if I struggle in this, I'm being blamed because I just didn't think the right happy thoughts at the right time. And I completely get that. I mean, you could take the most resilient person in the world. In, in other words, someone who's got a ton of well-developed resilient strategies and tools, and you can break them in the worst in, environment. And so I think there's been a bit of this sense that talking about resilience is in a sense potentially blaming the victim. And there was this great article that was written that I really loved that talked about within um, medicine, within healthcare, that there's the un unavoidable adversities for which we all need resilience. And then there's the avoidable adversities. And those should just be avoided. <laughs> you know, they should be fixed. 
And so the avoidable adversities are toxic cultures, bullying, unreasonable rostering, all of these sorts of things. And instead of telling people, hey, just buck up and deal with that, no, there should be change and these things should be fixed. And I am seeing a lot of change happening in Australia and it's probably happening too slowly in a lot of places, but at least there is change moving in the right direction. But that's not something where we should be saying to say a medical trainee or a nursing student, you know, just deal with it. And if you're, you think the right thoughts, you'll be fine. But then there's the unavoidable stuff um, in healthcare work. That's just part of the job. You're going to see people die. You're going to have difficult conversations with patients and families. You're going to see trauma. Um, you will at some point and, and maybe multiple times make a mistake where someone gets harmed that, you know, we're human beings, we make mistakes, but we're in these high stakes environment. And so there are these things that we're just all going to have to deal with in a healthcare setting. And that's where I think if we have some resilience skills, if we have some coping skills, if we have some strategies for how to think about these difficulties, I think that can make a huge difference. So thinking about ourselves as health professionals, what, what are some strategies that we might be able to develop our resilience or, or foster our resilience? So there are some good answers to that question, Brett, because there's been about 50 years of research to try and understand when people go through difficult situations and some come through it really well and some come through it really struggling, um, what's the difference? You know, can we pinpoint what people are doing that helps them come through things well. And a number of things have come out of that research. And, and at, the core, at the core of these research findings is the notion of appraisal, that you and I could go through the same adversity, and maybe the adversity you and I are both going through now is you know, the COVID adversity and having to adjust to working at home and being away from family members and, and worrying about health issues and things like that. Um, and it could be, and we're going through the same situation, but it could be that you have a way of looking at the situation that's making you feel most of the time pretty okay about what's going on. And I'm lacking some of those appraisal skills and coping skills, and so I'm struggling much more. And so so the, the key to these research findings is that the appraisal, the story we tell ourselves about what we're going through, the way we look at it, has a big impact on how well we do. And that appraisal can be broken down into three pieces. One is attribution. Why is this happening to me? Um, the second is, and a, a critical one is meaning. What does this mean? And the third piece is what can be done. And that's back to our coping, uh, coping strategies. What are the menu of options for dealing with this? And so the, the first piece appraisal, why did this happen? Usually when a bad thing happens to us, one of the first things we think is what the hell, you know, how did, how did this happen? So let's say, you know, it's for clinicians and healthcare workers, um, and, and let's say particularly, say, a junior doctor or a nurse in training, something goes poorly with a patient. 
Okay, there was a conversation you needed to have with a patient and it goes pear-shaped and everyone ends up upset. Um, and you come out of that interaction with the patient thinking, oh my God, how did that go so badly, right? And there are kind of healthier and less healthy attributions we can make for why did that happen? And there's kind of a dimension. So at one end of the dimension is it's everybody else's fault. So you could come out of that interaction thinking, well, it's this patient, you know, they have no perspective, they are so difficult and everyone says they're difficult. Or we could say, oh, you know, I knew my supervisor should have been in there with me and why did they leave me on my own to do this? And um, I should have had more support. The opposite extreme is it's all me. This conversation went badly because I'm a complete idiot and always will be. I have book smarts, but I don't have people smarts. I can't do these conversations. And those are sort of the two extremes. And neither of them are healthy, nor they, do they really leave us a way to move forward and grow and develop. And so what we want to have are healthy attributions, which really means we take responsibility where it's appropriate, and we think about, okay, so how can I move forward with this? And what's my opportunity for growth and learning here? And so, you know, we might, oh, and a great way to get ourselves to that healthy place and away from those more dangerous or unhealthy extremes is to ask ourselves, if I could do this over again, what would I do differently? And so as a trainee, I might think, oh, well, I didn't really think, I should have thought, just thought about the conversation for a few minutes before I walked in there. I kind of rushed into it. I was anxious about it. I wanted to get it over with. And so I walked in there without being well prepared. Um, if we're thinking, you know, I didn't have the support that I needed and, and that might be true um, as a trainee. It might be that people who could have helped us do this um, haven't practiced with us enough or really could have been in the room for us. But then instead of just feeling angry about that, we might say, you know, how can I identify going forward circumstances where I do think I need someone there? And how could I ask for that help? Next time this happens, I'm going to say this to my supervisor and ask them to help me out. Or I might ask my supervisor to role play this kind of scenario with me. Now, if you are the supervisor, let's say, you know, now you've got a student who's in tears or a trainee who's in tears about how terribly that went. And they're thinking I should quit medicine because I can't have these conversations. And you as the supervisor are thinking, why did this happen? And you might want to blame the student. It's all the student's fault or the trainee's fault. They should be good at this by now. And if they needed help, they should have told me. There's lots of ways we can blame the, the trainee. We might say to ourselves, oh, I'm just not a good clinical educator. You know, I shouldn't be doing education if I couldn't see that this was going to be a problem. So we could go to the extremes too, but we could ask ourselves instead, you know, this didn't go so well. What could I do differently the next time around? The next time I have a trainee that needs to have a difficult conversation, how could I help prepare them for that, right? And then you might identify, okay, yeah, I got pretty busy here, but 
I think that's something I should have broken away from my other tasks to help the student out from. You know, I'm seeing this theme with a number of students. Maybe we need to do a quick workshop all together to help tool them up. But what could I do to help improve the situation? And maybe that conversation is done with the trainees. You know, we had this situation happen this morning where a difficult conversation with a patient went pear-shaped. What do we all think we could do to be more successful at this? And a great thing to do if you're leading a team is to raise that question. If we could do this different, if we could do this over again, what would we have done differently? And then as the more senior person in the room, go first and say, here's what I wish I had done differently and give something. And if you do that, then the people around you will then jump in and contribute something to. So that's attribution. So it sounds like there's um, one of the strategies uh, that we could potentially help our, our learners or our trainees that we're working with is, is that idea of vulnerability. This, this has happened to me or this is happening to me as well. This is how I'm managing it. Um, here are some other strategies that you might utilise to help yourself. Is that a reasonable, reasonable way of going? Definitely. And one of the things as a clinical educator is we'd like our trainees to be making healthy attributions. So we don't want them thinking, oh, you know, I shouldn't be a doctor, I shouldn't be a nurse, I shouldn't be in allied health because I can't manage these conversations. And if you as a supervisor, someone who is, you know, doing things successfully, enjoying your career, they look up to you. If you can say, you know, when I first started out, I found this type of conversation so difficult to engage in. I was anxious about it. I tended to want to rush it just to get it over with. And that led to problems because then the patient couldn't ask the questions that they needed to ask. And if you could even tell a story about, you know, something that happened to you, that's hugely powerful because it helps normalize for the trainees that yes, this is hard and it takes a while to get good at it. And it's all part of the process of becoming a good doctor. You don't just, you know, you're not born to naturally have these conversations. You have to practice them. You mentioned meaning. So can you talk us through what that actually means? Yeah, so the second piece of appraisal is meaning, where we ask ourselves the question, you know, what does this mean? And our answers to that question can come in two kind of buckets or categories. One is we can have threatening meaning, meanings. We can be in threat mode where we focus on the negatives. You know, this means I'm not going to be a good clinician. This means this is an impossible skill to obtain. Or as an educator, uh, uh, the fact that we mishandled this educational opportunity uh, means that my supervisor might come down hard on me, or I'm going to get a reputation as a terrible educator. Um, you know, those are all threat meanings that focus on the potential harm uh, that's going to come out of this situation. And when we focus on harm, we feel very, very threatened. The other possibility is to, though, have a challenge interpretation that, oh, what this means is um, I need to talk to other people who are struggling with similar sorts of things and learn what they're doing to get better at 
what I'm doing. Um, this is a really, you know, the, the, the COVID-19 situation, um, it's a really, really difficult one. It's unprecedented. We've never had to deal with this before. What am I going to get good at doing that I was never good at doing before? That's kind of more of a challenge meaning. So sticking with COVID, a threat meaning would be, um, oh, we can't do this. We don't have the resources that we need to do this. Um, it's going to be horrendous. We're going to fall on our face. That would be a very threat mode. And a challenge mode would very much be, um, oh, we're going to get we're going to learn to do things that we've never had to learn before through this, even though it's incredibly difficult right now, ramping up to deal with this, even though it's very, very difficult. The next time we deal with a worldwide pandemic, and unfortunately there probably will be next times, we're going to have processes in place. We're going to have skills and abilities that are going to help us uh, deal better with this kind of thing. And, you know, one example of this is, you know, the decision was made to not have students around while we're ramping up efforts. And now I'm hearing some clinicians say, look, I think that was really necessary. I don't think I could have taught and gotten everything ready for a wave of COVID-19 cases. Couldn't have done all of that at the same time. But now people are saying, okay, but we don't seem to really have a process for deciding to bring them back in. <laughs> and, um, now, you know, we were so much worried about just making sure we could be ready that we're kind of not prepared for how do we get students back into the system. And we probably could have gotten them in earlier than we did, maybe. I mean, maybe some of you are thinking that and some of you might be thinking, no, I'm still not ready to have students around. It, it depends on the circumstances and what your specialty areas are and if you're somewhere where there's more cases than other cases. Um, but that's what a learning that is, that, hey, something we need to be thinking about with pandemics is when is it good to have students around? When is it not good? What are there ways we can pivot from our usual types of training to ways in which students can be helpful to us while we're setting up? I know my daughter's in nursing school at Deakin, and I know that um, a lot of nursing students have still been around. And part of that was that once they finish their first year of nursing school, there's stuff they can do that's helpful. They can wash patients. They can uh, give certain medications. There are a number of tasks that they can do that allow them to be a plus rather than a drain on the, on the system when we're in this kind of situation. So again, when we think about what's the challenge, what are the opportunities? How could we be thinking about medical education so that we have even first and second year medical students ready to help out in a pandemic situation? Um, what should we have them learning and able to do so that we can have them around? And even if we can't do official teaching or official clinical education, they could still be around helping us and learning through observation. And that would be much more of a sort of challenge a key factor that affects whether we are in threat mode or challenge mode in terms of the meanings is our view of resources and demands. So if we see that there's adversity we have to deal with or something difficult that we have to deal with, like COVID-19, and we don't have the resources 
the demands of the situation by far outpace the resources, then we tend to be in threat mode. We tend to think things like, I do not have what it takes. I am not going to be able to manage in this situation. And I think early on in COVID, um, a lot of doctors that I work with, doctors who are friends of mine, were certainly in that kind of mode. I don't have equipment to protect my team or myself or my family. And so people really were in threat mode. When we're in challenge mode, we tend to think that we have the resources available um, that, that we need. And so that helps us sort of move into a sense of, okay, I've got this. I think I've got what it takes to deal with this adversity. And I think some of us have moved into that mode. Um, and one thing we can do now that we're into that mode, because one thing I've heard from clinicians is, well, we've gotten rid of our elective surgeries. We didn't get the wave of cases that we thought we would have. And now I'm kind of like, uh, I don't have enough to do. Well, wow, for clinicians to not have enough to do, this is that's unprecedented. <laughs> so um, I think that this is an opportunity to think about what are the processes and the ways that we do things that could use improving? And what are some new ways to do things? So when I teach clinical leadership, what I hear so often from leaders is we know there's better ways to do things and we can think of ways that we could start making those improvements, but we have no time. And part of why we have no time is because our processes aren't as efficient and we're not doing things as well as we could be. And so you end up in this you know, really frustrating spiral. I think I talked about that in the in the last podcast. Well, maybe this is an opportunity to sort of think about, well, what would be the ideal way to engage in this process, to do the things that we need to do? Maybe we have some time to think about what are better ways to do things. And maybe we have colleagues who have some spare time too. So we could start planning initiatives or creating task forces for how we might improve X or Y in our healthcare systems. So it sounds like this period of time we've now essentially got where it has unfortunately been anywhere near as, as problematic here in Australia as, as we thought it was going to be is actually quite a good time for reflection. Yes, exactly. Reflection and then thinking about, you know, what what should I do differently? Um, there's, this, there's this idea, there's this great book out there called Busy, How to Thrive in a World of Too Much. It's pretty thick for a book for busy people, but um, it's still, it's definitely worth the read. And there's a lot of great stuff up front. So even if you just read the first few chapters, you'll get a lot out of it. But the point that the author makes, Tony Krabby makes is that we're usually dealing so much with inputs. For business people, that's all our emails, although healthcare workers have emails as well. But it's, you know, people asking questions, meetings we have to go to, and we don't make the big contributions to our organizations that we would actually like to make because we just come into work and we're dealing with the inputs. And in a clinical setting, those inputs are working with patients and their families and our trainees and, and things like that. So we have all these inputs that we never get the time to do the bigger projects that we think might actually make a lasting impact for us, our colleagues, our trainees, our patients. Um, this might be that time <laughs> um, to really think about 
what are the changes that we would like to make and envision how would we like things to work? What would be the ideal world in which I would be working, in which our hospital would operate? How would we do things? And maybe pick one, pick your favorite one, your favorite pet peeve that you could try and solve and you know, start designing some solutions and start talking to other people. And I would say maybe start doing that soon um, because we might get back to normal sooner than we think. And all of those elective surgeries and inputs, they'll, we'll be inundated with them fairly quickly. But I, I do want to add the caveat that if the stress of ramping up for dealing with COVID has been really tough for you, don't feel like, oh my God, I need to now work on some big project. Take the time to, to catch a breath and just get ready for things to return to normal. I reckon that's a great message to finish up on, Jill. So thank you very much for your time and, and some really great strategies that I think we can all use, uh, not just now, but certainly into the future as well. That's, that's great, Brett. Thanks very much. And um, we didn't cover coping very much, but I have a whole video on it. So I'm sure that with this podcast, you can also give people links uh, to some resilience videos that I've made for clinicians. Absolutely. And there's also going to be a mobile learning app uh, that you're working on at the, uh, the moment that'll be out pretty much with this podcast as well. So we'll put a link in the show notes so that people can access that too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MedEd Source brought to you by the Melbourne Medical School. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to us. You can get in touch with us on our Twitter handle at excite underscore U-O-M. Contact us via email with the email address in the show notes. And we look forward to speaking with you soon.